This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I'm over my So debt is something that is on the minds of a lot of people. And just a few statistics. U.S. adults hold $29,800 in debt on average, and that is exclusive of mortgages. It's actually an improvement over last year when it was 38000 That's all part of a planning and progress study uh, put out by Northwestern Mutual. Chantel, Chantel excuse me, Bonneau, is Wealth Management Advisor for Northwestern Mutual. She's based out in San Diego, California, lovely San Diego, but here with us in New York this afternoon. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. All right. So tell us what you found because this is something I think it's safe to say we don't all like to talk about, nope. but we probably need to talk about it more. <laughs> and what's clear from your work is that we're not talking enough about it. And some people don't even know the sort of debt that they have. Exactly. We not only don't want to talk about it, like you mentioned, but about 20% of people have no idea what amount of their monthly income is going toward facilitating debt payments, what their interest rates are. Um, we really have a, a head in the sand issue going on right now. Well, and it's interesting. I think we keep talking about stories that, hey, don't worry about it, everybody. Household debt is under control. Is it? Is it better than it was a year ago or five years ago? It's surprisingly significantly better than it was over the last two years. So in 2017 and 2018, our study found that the average debt was around the thirty-seven, thirty-eight thousand dollar mark and we're down right below thirty thousand now so something is going right and people are taking advantage of this full employment economy to maybe ask for a little bit more money at work get a nice bonus and really chip away at that debt so we're moving in the right direction but um but there's a lot of work to be done that's a 20 percent reduction that's pretty it's a big. big a big jump yeah yeah and so talk to us about the generations because you know some of your data show that less debt maybe if you're younger, which makes sense on the one hand, but it also feels like, and and I trust you to, to keep me honest here, that maybe younger folks are a little bit more aware of these issues, maybe having seen their parents sort of wrestle with this? So our findings um, showed that Gen X is really the one suffering the most. Yeah. And it makes sense because from all my experience with clients and the way that the data works out, Gen X has had to deal with being employed during a recession, potentially losing a house or overpaying on a house after the value plummeted for years. They're raising kids, their parents are aging, and they're supplementing their retirement. So they're serving as many money masters as are possible, which is why um, why their debt seems to be the highest. Millennials, what's really concerning is that their highest amount of debt isn't student loans like we thought. It's actually credit card debt. Ah. And so that says we have a behavioral issue. And Gen Z is so new um, that their debt really lies in student loans, but they're just beginning to exit college. So we'll see how that works out. But as it currently stands, they seem to be a little bit more aware of frugality and, like you mentioned, maybe learning a few lessons. Um, It's interesting, too, about what people consider is debt that they can kind of manage and they can tolerate. Talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So debt tolerance is something that I've really grown to experience through my time with clients because people feel so different about debt. You'll meet with some people that have $2,000 of credit card debt and you can just see the stress and anxiety in their minds. You have other people that have twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 of debt and somehow it doesn't bother them. And this is across all different income ranges. So debt tolerance is really a behavioral finance notion of how much debt causes behavioral change? 
everyone has a limit. It's just like when we get mm-hmm. on the scale and if it's a pound or two heavier than what you normally see, maybe it doesn't do anything. But if it's if it's five pounds more, right. all of a sudden we get a, get to the gym. So there is a, a real notion of understanding where your debt tolerance is. And so when you advise people, just give us a couple tips that folks should be thinking about either to get their arms around it or to start to pair it back. The first thing is know where you're starting. We have to know the amount of debt you have, the amount that is going monthly toward facilitating those payments, the interest rates, so we can even begin to prioritize. So that's the first step is is let's get our head out of the sand and, and focus on reality. The second thing is not to lose um, lose focus and lose hope, right? There's a huge portion of the population that feels guilt over their debt. About a third of the population is walking around feeling anxiety, stress, tons of guilt over this debt that they've had. And the antidote to that is really a plan and how we can execute and really build a strategy to begin paying down debt. Um, like most things, the most important thing is just getting started. Yeah. And if that doesn't work, cut off the credit cards or like, what is it they do? They freeze them in a block of ice in the freezer? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. No, I'm just kidding. Whatever it takes. But it's fascinating because this is something we talk about that here we are, we're not in a recession and we do worry about debt levels. Uh, so it was good to get that perspective of what we've seen over the last couple of years and in, in, in that household debt has actually come down. Absolutely. We're, we're lucky people are focusing, but I hope yeah. we can make the right moves right. Um, while we're in this good economic time and be ready for whatever's coming. And we got to keep talking about it. Great stuff. Uh, Chantel Bonneau is Wealth Management Advisor for Northwestern Mutual based out in San Diego. Here with us in New York City today. Sit down on this bank of sail and watch the river flow. They are award-winning filmmakers, a husband and wife team. They're on a mission to conserve African wildlife and the large predators that are increasingly being threatened or already are. Back with us uh, is there is the team of Beverly and Derek Joubert. They are um, Derek, of course, is CEO of Great Plains Conservation, based in Botswana, Africa. And Beverly, what is your title? You know, I think it's better not to have a title. <laughs> I kind of got thrown here. I guess, yeah. Everything else. <laughs> yeah. I watch over everything. <laughs> Listen, I've got to say, it's such a pleasure to have you folks back because we've talked about uh, some of the work that you've done in the past uh, in terms of conservation efforts. Tell me what you're up to right now. Well, um, one of the biggest things is uh, launching this film on the Okavango. So it's a series, and it really is an in-depth, intimate look um, at the Okavango. Where, where is it? Tell us. The Okavango Delta is in Botswana, and it's way up in the northern region. And, of course, it's very unique because it's a river that comes out of Angola from, uh, you, you know, from the high rains, but then dissolves into the desert. It doesn't go into a sea or into any other um, river, yeah. So we spent four years working on this, and we've had a lot of fun. We've had a couple of ups and downs, a few tears and a few bumps, but uh, four years on one project. Mm. And what made you do this now? Because this is obviously familiar territory, literally and figuratively, Mm. to you. Why now? Pure madness. (laughs) But what's interesting about like kind of bringing our attention, there is an abundance of wildlife there, right? And we were talking about how it's terrible that we feel like we don't necessarily prioritize some of the wildlife that's out there that is increasingly being threatened. Well, that's exactly right. And the Okavango is one of those jewels. It's an absolute haven for wildlife, some of the best concentrations of wildlife in the whole of Africa. But more and more, we've seen that all of these havens are, are coming under threat. So poaching has started to increase there over the last year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. Uh, More elephants, more rhinos. We went through a program where we've started bringing rhinos in to the Okavango. 
and uh, we started to see some poaching creeping in there as well. So these these heritage sites, these these havens, are are all now under threat again. You both have spent so much time focused uh, on big cats. Remind us why they are especially important uh, to these ecosystems. So the big cats really are the super predator, and they keep the uh, system in balance. You know, you, you need the predators to constantly be cropping and keeping migrations flowing. Um, so without the big cats, you'll have a sterile environment, and very soon the areas will die, and also you'll get man encroaching. In fact, often when there's poaching, the first thing that they'll come and do is kill all the predators. So it really is key. You know, when you look at the planet today and you realize that only 4% of the planet land uh, mass of mammals, um, that's what we have of wildlife. The rest of it, 60% is livestock and 36% humans. So we really, our goal has been to protect that 4%. What impact have you seen? Because you guys have certainly done a lot of work. You've put films out there. You've certainly kind of opened up your work to the rest of the world. What impact have you seen? Have you seen anything kind of move in, the, in a positive direction? Well, certainly it comes and goes. And uh, the only reason we keep going is because of that hope. Um, yeah. More and more we've seen down at the community level, in village level, people are turning into conservationists. Mm. And that's encouraging for us. Because they're see. given maybe another means of making a living? Or what? How, how does it happen? Well, exactly. And so in Botswana, for example, 42% of the people in that elephant range in the Okavango are hired by tourism. Mm-hmm. So they're real jobs going into these community in, at a community level. And so that's the best way to convert anybody at all. Just give them skills, give them jobs, and uh, make them in ambassadors. So tell us what people can expect to see when this series rolls out next month on PBS. Gosh, it's, it really is a mosaic of everything out there. Um, and what we try to do, which made it more challenging for ourselves, is we try to uh, tell an animal story and then have an, that animal hand over to the next one. Hmm. So there's, I mean, obviously they're animals that have symbiotic relationships, but we would do everything from underwater go diving with the crocodiles and then have the crocodile hand over to a barbel fish, for instance, Mm -hmm. and then on and on it would go, and then to a little jacana, which is a little bird that walks on these lilies. And and that was our main goal, but... It, you really do see the Okavango through the eyes of the animals, but at the same time, the water is a character. In fact, the water is the key character that follows um, everything through. And we've called each series, um, you know, it, it, the, the Paradise, form is, Limbo, it, it's exactly, yeah. Inferno. Inferno. And, and Inferno, yeah. Yeah. So that's I have notes in front of me. I have good, it good, easier good. for me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the journey that we do. So it was in these three parts. And and uh, because of an incident that happened to us, I started reading uh, Dante's Inferno and, mm. and Divine uh, Comedy quite a lot. And so we broke it down like that. And that's one of the great things about working with nature and PBS is that we have the the uh, intellectual space and creative space to, to do something like that. I have to say that in terms of getting into predators, um, I've been watching a series, too, that's about Africa. And I told you guys before I came in, my daughter spent some time in Tanzania uh, over the summer and was really kind of blown away by the rhinos particularly and how they had guards because there's so few of them uh, there. But what was interesting is this series I've been watching that it, it doesn't um, – kind of cover the predators that 
kill other animals. And as you say, it's part of the natural cycle, right, in kind of keeping everything in check. And I do think there's something to be said by showing kind of how it really works in nature. Because yeah. I feel like for a long time, documentaries were kind of soft and fuzzy when it came to um, animal wildlife. And I think you have to understand how it works in nature and how we have to kind of let it go. Uh, and not disrupt it. Well, you're right, and I think that w- all that we really do is we bring these these parables to audiences, um, mm-hmm. stories about how real life works, and for the same reason that we have pets, and it prepares us for that, that difficult conversation about death sometimes. So we just want to point out a screening of the first episode tomorrow, uh, September 18th, at the Crosby Street Hotel in New York City, but as Jason mentioned, the entire series will begin airing on PBS beginning in October 23rd. Um, really love the efforts and hearing what you guys are up to, so thank yeah, you so much. Uh, Derek and Beverly Joubert, of course, of Great Plains Conservation, typically finding themselves in Africa, but found their way to New York for a couple of days. Really nice to have them here. Here with us in studio. Ah, yes, indeed. Uh, here I am. Uh, FedEx shares. Here I am down about 7.3% in the after hours. Uh, this after the company uh, came out with its latest quarterly update, but it's really the outlook that has uh, investors a little unhappy here. So let's get into it with our Lee Klaskow. He knows all things FedEx. He's a senior transport logistics and shipping analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, is it really all about trade here, Lee? Yeah, hi, Carol. Uh, just when you thought it really couldn't get any uh, worse for FedEx, it, it, it does. I mean, the shares are down over 30% over the last uh, 12 months. And, you know, it, it has to do with, you know, global trade slowing down. It has to do with, you know, probably taking longer to turn around the TNT acquisition that it made a couple of years ago. Um, you know, and we really don't know what's going on in, in China. You know, uh, there's a lot of uh, headline risk there with uh, some of the news out of China in terms of their wrongful deliveries and what that actually might mean to, to business. You know, um, there was one uh, bright spot, if, if you want to call it that, that's a FedEx freight. Freight, freight is their less than truckload business. It's their smallest unit, but they are the uh, largest LTL carrier in North America, and they're seeing good pricing there, uh, and that drove uh, eBay. Uh, up 10% and margins expanded by about 120 basis points. So that was good news. But obviously, their larger businesses, uh, Ground and Express, uh, have not uh, have done as well. And some of that has to do with a mix shift towards more uh, B2C traffic, which tends to have lower yields and, and lower rates of profitability. And so when you look across the, not just FedEx, but, but the broader sort of shipping landscape, it feels like FedEx has been among the most vocal, certainly in their sector, about the trade war. Is that a matter of exposure? Is that a matter of size? Why does it seem to be impacting them so strongly? Well, you know, I think the commentary from a lot of uh, transportation C-suite folks has been uh, that the trade war has been an, a negative uh, impact to their businesses, um, maybe not so much on the growth aspect, but what the uncertainty is doing mm-hmm. for the future growth, uh, whether that's uh, FedEx, UPS, or some of the, the railroads that we cover, like CSX or Union Pacific, or also some of the container liner shipping uh, lanes, line, liners that we cover as well. So, you know, you are hearing that as, you know, a headwind, and, you know, that uncertainty is really driving global trade lower and global GDP lower as well. 
Well, and it's interesting. I'm also noticing, of course, UPS took a look at that in the after hours. It's down about 2.3% as well. Should we assume if FedEx is having problems that UPS is uh, because of the trade issue? I mean, they're not exactly apples to apples, but they obviously play uh, in the same world. Yeah, they, they certainly do. You know, um, China is uh, probably like high mid single digit uh, revenue for uh, for FedEx, so it's it's a big size. And so, if you're having less stuff being shipped out of uh, China because of the trade war, you know that's going to impact their volumes. You know, um, this is something. You know, when we're talking about the trade war and we're talking about global trade, UPS is obviously impacted as well. Um, but just it really remains to be seen how much is being impacted and if they can kind of offset that impact with their global network uh, and their own freight business as well. And that TNT acquisition, that seems to be the, – the concerns about that seem to be hanging around for, for quite some time. Do I have that wrong? I feel like we've been talking about that for a long time, this, this integration and, and maybe some of the obstacles that they face there. What's going on? Yeah, you know, what happened, they, they bought TNT a couple of years ago, and as soon as they pretty much took ownership of it, TNT was paralyzed uh, by a cyber attack. Uh, and if it wasn't for FedEx, you know, TNT probably would have been um, um, not in existence today yeah. um, because it was really devastated. So FedEx had to pour a lot of money into TNT. They kind of accelerated the, the integration of TNT onto its business. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get an update on the 430 call in terms of where they are, uh, but they've pretty much integrated all the smaller countries in Europe. They're working through the larger countries. We don't quite know where they are in that process, but again, we'll probably get an update um, um, later on today. Uh, and, you know, you know, we are kind of a, a long believer in the FedEx model. Um, we just think that, you know, this is a uh, kind of a rough patch that they're hitting. Um, you know, they're spending a lot of money on modernizing their network. They're going to seven-day uh, delivery. Um, they're kind of looking towards, you know, trying to uh, be everything to everyone but Amazon, uh, which is a great thing if you're in the e-commerce space, right? Because uh, Amazon tends to come while it comes with a lot of volumes. It also comes with extremely low uh, uh, margin business. So, you know, I think they they are having some near-term pain for some uh, long-term gains, if you will. All right, we're going to leave it there. We know you're a, a busy guy this afternoon, Lee Glasgow, senior transport logistics and shipping analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from BI headquarters down in Princeton, New Jersey. And just taking a quick look at those shares. Yeah, Yeah, still hovering down there. They've been pretty consistently down about 7% since those numbers came out. We know we'll get more color uh, from the call. And as the sell side puts out their notes and starts to synthesize everything they're hearing from FedEx and always a question of how much is company specific and how much of it is macro. UPS down about 2.4%, so taking that down as well. All right, something we're going to certainly follow into uh, Fed Wednesday.